You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. If you would, go ahead and turn to the book of Matthew. We're going to continue our series this week titled Live. We've titled the series Live because we know and understand this, that ultimately God has told us how we can live life and live it to its fullest. And so instead of us taking our marching orders from someone else, who better to take them from than God, who not only gave the orders, but stepped into humanity to fulfill the orders in the way that we couldn't, and then empower us by spirit to live them out. Before we do that, let me say this. Sarah, thank you so much for leading us in announcements this morning and to the prayer. It was beautiful, especially in light of all that you're going through. So thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Moms who have placed your trust in Jesus, let me say this. You are not defined by your worst or your best moments in parenting. Yelling, patience, whatever it is. At the end of the day, every day, you're defined by being God's daughter first and foremost, which means this, that his affections, his delight over you is the most constant thing in your life. So let me say that first to the moms in the room that have placed their trust and faith in Jesus. Okay, next. We want to create a culture of honor in GCC and make sure that we're doing that. In, in other words, as we're talking about delight today, even in Psalm 16:3, David talks about delighting over the saints in the land because he's taking delight in what God has done to provide redemption for his people. And so we want to also honor that as well. And so there was a few ladies who went over to man camp this last week and sacrificed and served and gave up their time to do that. I don't know if you guys are in the room uh, but if you'd be willing to stand up for me, that'd be awesome. I know it's Rachel, Sheila, let's see, who else do we have? Kathy and Laura. Awesome. Thank you, guys. And a lot of people are wondering how man camp went. And so sometimes I just feel like words don't do justice to how man camp went. And so I think this will say it all right here. Here you go, guys. <laughs> Those are actually from like several years in the past. So, but in all seriousness, it was a blast. I I've said this about our guys that our guys are rough around the edges, a ton of fun, but ultimately know this, they're growing in their understanding of Christ's love for them and their love for Jesus. And it's incredible to be around and to be a part of, and I'm thankful for the time that we got to have together over there. It was, it was a blast. So yeah. So with that, if you guys haven't already turned, turn with me to the book of Matthew. This is an interesting Mother's Day sermon. Let me just say that. <laughs> but we're going to continue on in our series, and I think it's a great subject for not just men, but for women as well. And so we're going to be talking about lust today and adultery today, which I know even saying that brings up all sorts of emotions within the room. And so let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you for your word. Again, thank you that you not only gave your commands, your law, but Father, through and in your Son, Jesus Christ, you stepped in to humanity. And you, you took on flesh and blood to not just be the lawgiver, but the law fulfiller. Thank you, Jesus, that we're not left to be crippled and crushed by the way we don't uphold the commands. But thank you for the way that we can take rest, an abundance of rest, and knowing that you fulfilled them perfectly. Remind us of that this day. Your word, I pray today, would cut. But your same word, God, I pray, would heal through the truths of the gospel. So I pray you would do the work that needs to be done in our hearts and lives, that we would listen for ourselves and not for everyone else in the room or for those not even in the room. Thank you for the mothers. 
I'm just going to agree with what Sarah said and said so beautifully. So thank you for the moms. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Our main point this morning is this. Take pleasure in being treasured. So take pleasure in being treasured. One more time. Take pleasure in being treasured. So that's our main point this morning. We're going to work through this outline. God, specifically this about him, as a covenantal God of goodness and pleasure. Then we're going to look at we, how we twist his gifts through lust and discontentment. Then we're going to look at Jesus, how Jesus makes us God's treasure, how he seals a covenant and ultimately reconciles us to God and gives us contentment. Then we're going to look at what we do in light of these truths. So again, we're going to look at God being a covenantal God of goodness and pleasure, how we twist his gifts through lust. We're going to look at Jesus, how he makes us God's treasure. And then we're going to look at what we do in response to this. So read with me if you would. We're not actually going to dive our tackle all the way through. I think originally we were going to go through 37 today. We're We're going to go 27 through 30. There's plenty there. So that's where we'll be at today. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than the whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Christianity is really different from any other religion. It's one of the things that oftentimes will bother me when people are like, yeah, they're just all the same. They're not. Even as we look at God and what we believe about God, even from something like a Buddhist belief, you see for Buddhists, they believe in what's called nirvana. And nirvana is the state of getting rid of all desires, which is funny to me because it seems like it would be a desire to get rid of all desires. And then maybe once you did that, you would still probably desire that the desires wouldn't come back. So I don't know how they work through that. But in Christianity, we're not trying to get rid of desires. We're not trying to get rid of pleasure. Instead, what we're trying to do and understand is that God is actually a God of pleasure. God is a God of goodness. God is a God that gives good gifts that we can find and take pleasure in. And I would say this is that it is a beautiful thing when Christians actually start to enjoy the goodness of God and the gifts that he's given for us to find and take pleasure in. And so first, in order to understand what's going on here, we're going to have to know and understand this, that pleasure is not the problem. The things that we find pleasure in is part of the problem, but how we find pleasure in them is the greatest problem. So in other words, God, the gift giver, gives us good gifts that are pleasurable. But when we make the good gifts the gift giver or swap the the good gifts for the gift giver and make the gifts the ultimate thing, then it turns into a twisted gift. Because what we'd have to do and understand what's going on here is go back to the beginning of Genesis 1 to creation where God starts to create things. And as he creates them, he calls them good. He calls them pleasing. He calls them beautiful. So God himself is defining the very things that he says, this is good and this is good and this is good. And he's giving good things to be enjoyed. God is the giver. I should have said this up front. I'm going to say it now. It's going to be a little PG-13 this morning. So I don't know what to do with that at this point, but just as a heads up, that's a little late. So... But God is also the God who gives the gift of sex. The gift of sex was and intended to be a really good gift and a pleasurable gift. In fact, the the highest moment or the climax of sex, which is the orgasm, is 
one of the most pleasurable moments that humans can enjoy, which shows, shows this, that the giver of that gift actually wants us to have and take pleasure in what he's provided. And to point to this, that he's really, really good. But with every gift that God has given to or given us, he's given a context for that gift to be enjoyed. Because a, a gift is good given that it's enjoyed in its appropriate context, but it is not good when it's enjoyed out of the context that God has deemed it to be in. It's the same thing. It's like swimming, good gift. Swimming in class five rapids, bad idea, right? Running, good gift. Running down a one-way street the wrong way, bad idea, right? Because we understand that there's appropriate context for things to be enjoyed and for us to truly enjoy them with a sense of safety and freedom in the process. So what we have to see is that these things that God has given, as the text is talking about, sex, that it comes with a context that it's meant to be enjoyed in, but it also ultimately comes with this. It comes with a covenant. And sex is never, ever, ever, ever intended to be enjoyed outside of a covenant. And the covenant specifically a marriage. And here's why. A covenant provides safety and a covenant provides security. Because a covenant says that I'm committed. It's not a word that we commonly use in our culture today, but it's a word that was used roughly 300 times in the Old Testament and at least 33 times in the New Testament. It's used a lot. What a covenant is saying is it's saying, I'm making a commitment. I, I'm all in. I'm, I'm binding myself. I'm bound to you. And, and therefore, the safety and perfection is this, is that I'm committed and making a covenant with a covenant relationship, which means this, that when my feelings come and go, they're not driving my love for you. The covenant is. Your performance is not driving my love for you. The covenant relationship is. You see, if your emotions are driving the relationship, you're actually just enslaved to your emotions. What we have inside of a covenant in a committed relationship is this, is even when my needs aren't getting met, even when you're not doing and providing the things for me that I would like, I'm committed to you because the covenant is what binds us and it's what, what, what my love and commitment and, 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 and drive flows out of. God is a God who makes a covenant and he makes a covenant with his people. He makes a covenant with his children. And, and there is such safety when you understand a covenant because inside of this covenant where you're like, are you going to come? Are you going to go? Are, are you staying? Are you leaving? It's not based upon a level of performance, which is why when we say, well, let's have, you know, sex outside of marriage or let's test drive the car, all those stupid things that our culture says, what it's saying is I'll find out if I want to commit myself based upon how well you perform. And we'll kind of go from there. A covenant says no matter what, I'm all in. I'm committing myself to you, even when everything else in life seems up and down, or you're, I'm not doing this, you're not doing this. We keep looking back to this. Remember this. Remember the promise. Remember the covenant. We have a great picture of this in Genesis 15. You see, God is making a covenant with this man named Abraham. And what he's doing is something that Abraham would have understood really well, because in ancient Eastern, Eastern cultures, what would happen is this, is if a king took over a country what he would do is he would set up the terms for the people of the country he just took over. And what he would say is, these are the terms that you're going to abide by, and this will be the consequences if you don't abide by the terms I'm laying out. And what they would do at that point is they would cut animals in half, shed their blood, and they would lay them apart. So they would cut them in half and lay them on opposite sides. And they would make the people of the land walk back and forth between the animals. And what the king was saying to you is this, here's the covenant. If you don't uphold what I'm telling you to do, 
this is what's going to be done to you. You're going to be cut in half, right? So that's what, 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 that's what kings would do. But also people would do that too. When they would make a covenant with people, they're like, hey, we're taking this commitment serious, right? Yeah. Okay, well, let's do it. We're going to cut animals in half. We're going to shed the blood. I'm going to walk through and you're going to walk through. And what we're saying is this, is both of us are so committed to one another that if one of us breaks this covenant or commitment, let this be done to us. In, in Genesis 15, we see this and Abraham would have known exactly what was happening. So in Genesis 15 verses nine through 11, this is what we see. So God talking to Abraham says this, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half and laid each half over and against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Abraham knew what was happening. Oh yeah, it's covenant time. It's covenant time. So what's likely going to happen is cut these in half and you lay out the terms God and I'll walk through them. But let's, let's read on. Verses 17 through 18. When the sun had gone down, so darkness was coming over the land, and it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these two pieces. On that, that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of uh, Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Okay. So at this point, what's happening is this, is the flaming torch and the smoking fire pot are pictures of God. And what is happening here is, is if you actually go back before this and read the full story, is a deep sleep came over Abraham, almost like a coma-like state that he was in that God caused to, to fall upon him. So he was, in a sense, almost dead-like. And then in this moment, what would have been expected is that Abraham's like, I cut the animals, go ahead and lay out the terms, I'll walk through them. But instead, God walks through them. And he says, if I'm ever not faithful to my covenant to you, let this happen to me. That was unheard of. Like, that did not happen. But that's what God did. He's like, if I'm, if I'm unfaithful to my covenant, this is how serious God takes his covenant to his people. He's like, hey, if I don't hold this thing up, let this be done to me. That's why there's such safety in a covenant that God gives. And so first we have to see this, that what we know about the God, the God of Christianity, the God of the Bible is this, is that he is a God who is good and he gives really good gifts. He's a God of pleasure and he likes us to enjoy and take pleasure in his gifts. I was watching this yesterday in my yard. My daughter Brooks was outside just playing with, one of those hoes that has like the things that just go everywhere. And I was like, oh, it's just, it's awesome to watch her play with that. You know, I'm a little twisted in my own mind, not like God. And so I went out there and turned the hose on without her seeing because I wanted her to spray her. But I was like, it's just really sweet to like watch her enjoy something that we got her, right? Oftentimes we have these very twisted views of God. We're like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive out and just enjoy the countryside, right? In my car. And, and our thoughts are like, God's probably not happy with me. It's probably going to be a deer that runs out in front of me or something like that, you know? just to take away my joy in this moment. Or maybe you're paddle boarding and God's like, yeah, I see you enjoying the sun. I'm going to bring some clouds in or something, you know? You're having too much fun with my creation. I think we have, sadly, this very twisted view of God and how he looks at his children and, and the kind of joy that he, that he gets from watching his children take pleasure in the gifts that he's given. I like what Dane Ortland says, that oftentimes what Christians need to do is repent of our dark thoughts that we think about God. And so he's a good God, but he's a God of covenant too. A God who is so faithfully committed to his children. Who are we? As Jesus lays it out here, look at this. Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. I, I asked a couple weeks ago, I was like, how many of you guys have ever murdered someone and only one person raised their hand, right? But, but then we, we understood this, that what was happening and what Jesus was doing is, is the Pharisees and the scribes were given this very lightweight, surface level definition of what murder was. And Jesus like, let me 
define for you what the biblical definition of murder is. It's, it's hate in, inside of your heart. And the same thing for today. Uh, many people would have been like, yeah, good, solid. I've upheld the adultery piece. But then Jesus is like, look here, verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh, I don't know a single man on planet earth that's like, I've, I've got that one. We're going to unpack that. I don't believe there's a single woman either in just a minute. But that in and of itself makes us go, uh-oh, uh-oh. So we have this good God who gives these pleasurable gifts, but then we see us and what we do with them is that we take something like the gift of sex that's meant to be enjoyed inside of the context that God has given, which is a covenant marriage, and then we start to abuse or twist it. And look, Satan knows that God is so good and that his gifts are so good that he also knows the only way to mess things up is if we can come out, take these awesome gifts and twist them up. In other words, let's figure out how to make them worship the gifts instead of the gift giver. And so that's what we do. The reason why lust is such a massive deal is what you are doing is you are taking someone inside of your imagination against their own free will and then making them do or be whoever you want them to be for you without their consent. Think about it that way. You are taking a man or woman and saying, you're, you're going to fill this need for me. You're going to be this for me in my thought life, in my imagination, whatever it is. And I don't have your permission to do it. So I'm going against your consent and, and against your consent and free will. That's a big deal. And pornography is such a big deal. And, and please hear me in this. Pornography is, I mean, sweeping a destructive path through the local church. I mean, a devastating path through the local church. What is pornography? It's, I want to have my needs met physically without having any sort of buy-in or investment relationship. So there's no hurt or no rejection for me. Now, I'm going to be graphic in, 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 in what I'm saying here and, and offensive. Would you ever sit around and watch a group of people urinating on God's word and give worship to that? Because in a sense, what we do when we watch pornography is we are worshiping something that directly goes against God's design for men and women in the context of marriage. You are worshiping something God says, don't do that. And giving your heart and your affections to it in an act of worship. We would never do that if we saw someone being like, hey, let's mock God or let's all get around worship and mock God. And then let's worship people worshiping the fact that we're mocking God, if that made any sense. But that's what watching pornography is. You're also paying money into, a, into something that objectifies women, that's destroying families, and that might be around for generations to come that destroys your own children's families. That's why it's a big deal. That's why it's a big deal to Jesus to say, no, 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 no. It's not just adultery. If you've lusted after a woman in your heart, then you've committed the act of adultery. Jesus is black and white in this. It's also, it's an act of taking. When God's designed for sex, his, has been giving. So I'm going to take what I want. Instead, what sex is meant to be in the context of a marriage, I'm going to give. That's my primary focus that I'm going to give. But maybe you're like, okay, haven't done that. It says, it says men doing that for women. I like what D.A. Carson says. D.A. Carson says the Greek can be translated two ways. He goes, here's the other way that the Greek is translated. He said, anyone who looks at a woman, listen, so as to cause her to lust commits adultery. Okay. So everyone who looks at a woman as so to cause her to commit adultery. Again, this is not just saying this is only a, a, a men thing that men struggle with lust. It's, it's also saying this, that if you lust after man, after woman or man or woman in your heart, that's adultery. But also 
If you do something in such a way to move a man or woman to lust after you, that's adultery. So if you dress in such a way to be attractive to your spouse, fine. If you're dressing in such a way to get the approval or the praise or have someone else take the light in you, adultery, flirting, charming. I'm telling you, I'm guilty of all of these. Doing those things to get things that you want is what Jesus is saying is adultery. Trying to get another guy to catch your eyes so that he drifts his eyes back to you in such a way that he desires you, he would lay out as adultery. But maybe you're like, okay, still doing decent, which I would really struggle with. In 1 John chapter 1, I want to say, you can read this later, but it's 15 through 17. I want to say it's, it's like 15 or 16. Don't quote me on this direct address, but, but it is right in there. He, he says this. He says, the love of this world is the pride of the flesh and the desires or the lust of the eyes. And so it's also lusting after thing is just overly desiring something that you're craving it. You're like, I don't know how to be content unless I have this. And so that is the very same thing that you can trust for ideologies. You can trust for a way that your marriage should look that it doesn't look. I think where men can be drawn toward pictures Women can be drawn towards lifestyles. Hey, I saw this date night they went on. Hey, I see the way he emotionally pursues her. Hey, I see this. And so in the same way, porn, pornographic images or material is bad for for men. Same thing, emotional porn is bad for women. It's like, I, I see all this and this kind of guy. I remember watching Twilight, okay? Don't hold that over me. But it's like... These women, I remember listening to women being like, oh, there's just like two guys. There's just like this uh, Edward. There's this Edward. He's like, he's like mysterious. And like, he just gets her on like this really deep level. And she's got this other Jack dude named Jacob. And it's like, he's like rough around the edges. And like, she doesn't know which way to go. I'm just like, that's emotional porn. Because all of a sudden you're like, I want some of that. I want that like guy who just like gets me. And like, there's this like this weird connection we can't define. And like, Yeah but it's also just longing to have something that you don't have, that it's producing a level of discontentment in your life. You can do that. Listen, please. You can do that with your two minutes ago. I wish I had a do-over in that conversation. And that's all you can think. Like, I'm just lusting, longing after. If I could just redo that really weird and awkward conversation, that's all I can get past. I can't think of that. If I could have a do-over in my parenting, if I could have a do-over in all the things that I'm discontent with, Listen, the gospel call, tells you to, to, to focus on the past, just not your own. Jesus's, period. One of the great, enemy's greatest ploys is just to get you focused on something else, especially you. You're two minutes ago, you're two days ago, you're two years ago. If you would have done this, maybe chose this past, path in life, maybe dated this person, maybe all of this. When David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's a longing, it's a wanting. It's, if I had this, then maybe I would be a little bit more content. You know, we're doing the same stuff all the same stuff, human history as we're just repeating it, we're putting different names on it. But we're doing the same things. That's what we do with the God who gives us incredible gifts is we lust after them, we long after them, and we live in this state of being discontent, which is this. If you want to define discontentment, it's I believe I deserve more than what I have or what God has given me. So I I should have something more. I should be getting something more. There should be more provided in my life than the current state that I have. Whatever it is that I have, I need this in order to have a deep sense of like, I don't know, well-being or satisfaction or something about me. And discontentment grows. You know where it starts? With simple stuff. Like I wish my wife would put keys back where they're supposed to go. Or maybe, guys, I'm just making these up, okay? (laughs) 
maybe my husband would stop leaving his flosser laying around the house, you know? It starts with little stuff like that where I'm getting discontent with the way you're doing the dishes. You name it. And then it grows. Actually, I think I deserve this. I deserve this. This should be done. And what Christ is saying and, and, and essentially what he's unpacking is what you do with your eyes matters because Jesus is always getting at this. The heart matters. The heart matters. And, and if your question is, and man, I'm just going to share this story. I, at our old church, when, where I was a family pastor, I had an, uh, an interaction with a guy who was pushing 80 years old and had a whole history of fornicating, okay? And then he, he goes, I don't like the way this other pastor talked to me. And so the three of us sat down and, and, and talked, uh, and he, I was like, what don't you like about it? He said to tell me to stop like rubbing the women's hand while I'm greeting at the door. I'm like, yeah, that's weird. And, and he's like, okay, Rick, I'm just going to repeat what he said, okay? So we can deal with it, all right? So he goes, pastor, I don't know why that's a big deal. He goes, I got one testicle, okay? I don't see how that's relevant to the conversation. He goes, he goes, now I'm just flustered and confused. I was like, what are you flustered and confused about? He's like, what's lust? What's not lust? I was like, what do you mean? He goes, well, I asked someone else. I was like, what's lust? And then he was like, well, it's when you stare at a woman more than twice. And so he goes, so my question is simple. Can I stare at a woman's butt for a long time, one time? And I'm like, oh my gosh, you are almost 80. Like, this is incredible. And so I just came back to this. I said, what does the heart have to say about all of this? Do you think you're able to do that in such a way that brings glory and honor to God and then to the woman? Are, are you, do you need me to lay out a list of here's the things you can do and not do so you can figure out how close to the things you're not supposed to do? Or do you just want to figure out what it looks like to glorify God and the decisions and the actions that you take? And the, re, the reality was, he's like, just lay it out for me because I just want to figure out what I can get away with, you know? Because our inclination because of the wickedness of our hearts is just to twist the gifts that God has given us. I'm going to quote something from Sean McDowell that Brad sent me. He says this, Imagine a world in which everyone follows God's design for sex and marriage. There would be no sexually transmitted disease, no abortions, no brokenness from divorce. Every child would have a father and a mother and experience the love and acceptance each parent uniquely offers. There'd be no rape, no sex abuse, no sex trafficking, no pornography, and no need for a Me Too campaign. Think of the healing and wholeness that people would just listen to Jesus' life giving words regarding human sexuality. The reason why I said human history is repeating itself is because human history always thinks we're smarter than God. And so we continue to repeat the same things, thinking that it's going to produce a different outcome. When instead, God, who is really good, told us, here's how you can enjoy these really good gifts in their appropriate context. And we say, no, thanks. I'll do it my own way. That goes, back to the, that goes back to the garden, to Eve. She saw something with her eyes that was desirable and said, I want it. I don't care how it impacts anyone else. I'm going to make it mine. It's lust. At this point, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming mostly everyone in the room could say, yeah, not doing super well. And so what do we do? What, 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 what we do is recognize this, that we can't, and that ultimately Jesus has. From conception to the cross, Jesus was pure and flawless. Jesus never traded the gift for the gift giver. In every single day, in every single outcome, or in every situation, circumstance, Jesus found perfect contentment in God and in being God's son. He lived a life of pure obedience. He lived a life of pure worship, and he took that life with him to the cross to say this, I'm here to make a covenant. So if we look back and remember the covenant that God was making with Abraham, it was, hey, if you break or if I break this covenant, let this be done to me. 
And so Jesus is now, after living a life of complete wholeness, purity, and perfection, is now on the cross. But it doesn't make sense. Why is he on the cross? Did, did God not live up to his word? No, because if we understand the covenant fully, it's this. It's if I don't live up to my end of the deal, let this be done to me. But also, if you don't live up to your end of the deal, let this also be done to me. What Jesus was doing on the cross is saying, I lived up to my end, but you didn't live up to your end. So I'm here. I'm here to bear the wrath of God for you. And when did this come? It came at the sixth hour. Darkness came over the land. In the same way that darkness appeared before Abraham, and Abraham lay there lifeless, not contributing anything, so it is with us. We don't contribute anything to the covenant that God makes with us other than our sin. Jesus does all the work. Jesus lays it down and says this, this covenant is sealed and secured by my blood shed right here. From this moment forth, it's this. I made the covenant. It's about my actions. It's about my works. It's about my blood, not about your performance. It's me who's done it. It's not I do most, you do a little. I've done it all. And your security is this, is that I've done it all and I've paid it all. My covenant with you is safe and it's secure for eternity, which means this. My love for you will not be contingent upon your obedience. It's contingent upon the covenant I've made right here and done. But here's what the cross also does. It doesn't just pay for us. What it does is it reconciles us back to God to be God's treasured possession. So the main point is this, take pleasure in being treasured. I've heard oftentimes, Christians, Christians, take pleasure in Jesus, take pleasure in Jesus. Find your ultimate treasure and your ultimate hope and your ultimate delight in Jesus. And it's like, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm I'm really trying to find my pleasure in Jesus. What I'm saying is this, rest and take pleasure in the fact that you are God's treasure. The, the greatest thing that you can find your pleasure in is knowing this, that you are God's treasure. Scripture backs this up. Let me read a few verses as we work through them. Look at Psalm 149.4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns them, covers them, arrays them, in a sense, the humble with salvation. So the Lord takes pleasure in his people. Isaiah 42.1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Do you think of that? like that God delights in you. I think if there's one thing that Christianity has sold short, it's God's delight and pleasure in doting over his children. It's that we've like undersold the love of God or somehow we need to figure out how to put in a box or something like that. It's like God delights, not in a measured calculated way, but he takes like great delight over those that are in a covenant relationship with him. Luke 12, 32, Jesus says this, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Again, it's God's good pleasure to give us good things. Psalm 147, 10 and 11 says this, his delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. In those, look, look here, who hope in his steadfast love. What, what, what gives God pleasure? Those who hope in his infinite love for them. You want to give God pleasure? Trust in his love for you. You you want to see what stirs up God's pleasure and what God takes pleasure in? It's that he will love you constantly, endlessly for all eternity. Hope in that. Psalm 36, 8. They feast on the abundance of your house. This is David talking, and he's talking about the saints in the land. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. I don't know what you're drinking from, but what you can drink from because of Christ's work and the covenant relationship you have is you can drink from the endless river of God's delight and rejoicing over you. His pleasure. And so when we say take pleasure because you are treasured, what I'm saying is this, find your ultimate pleasure in the fact that God treasures you. 
Because if you're like, I'm, I'm going to go find my ultimate pleasure in God, you're going to be really fickle. We should be, like, like we should find our ultimate pleasure in God. But the truth is, is that this, is that we can find pleasure in the fact that God treasures and finds pleasure in us. How much does God love the son who sits at his right hand with endless love and affections? And where are you? Colossians 3.3 says you're hidden in Christ. How much pleasure does God find in you? Endless. So we can take pleasure when we wake up tomorrow. We can take pleasure not in how well we're parenting, not in how well we're doing. We can take pleasure in this, knowing that we're treasured endlessly by God. Not for what we do, not for what we don't do, but because of those truths and that reality. What do we do in light of this? Look at what the text says. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, 29. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jesus gives hyperbolic, big, drastic language. Please hear me. Whatever is causing sin in your life, he's saying, get rid of it. He's not literally saying, chop off an arm, chop off a leg. Because you could, you could be limbless and still struggle when the struggle's in here. But what you can do, secondary to the gospel, which has to provide our motivation. If you know this, imagine the, the kind of freedom and rejoicing and worship that a covenant with God provides. If you know that God is not committed to you based upon your performance, but based upon what his son has done and his blood Imagine the freedom that you have with God to not be like, are you disappointed? Am I doing this? Am I, am I not doing this right? No, the covenant says you're defined by my love for you, what my son has done for you. That's what's going to drive me, always the covenant. What we do is this, is get rid of the things. If your phone causes you to sin, get a flip phone. I struggle with people in our culture that nowadays are like, there's this hyper thing on like alcohol and stuff like that. But I'm like, I see no one getting rid of their phones. And yet it's like 90% of men struggle with pornography. Like, I don't see anyone being like, hope I'm not making anyone stumble with my phone. It's like, I would say whatever you don't want to get rid of, probably get rid of that first. That's what you do. But also the other thing that you do is this, is one way to get out of yourself. That's what lust is. It's what can I get is what can I give to others? Again, a picture and a reflection of the gospel is not Jesus coming to take everything. It's Jesus coming to give everything. And so if we mimic Christ, we, we mimic the fact that we give. I love what one of our elders, Ronnie Gogan, says that whenever he's struggling with lust, one of the things he does is think to himself, how can I love and encourage my bride right now? And how can I love and encourage others? Because all I'm thinking about is what I need and what I want. Let me say this, and I'm going to say it so boldly, that I am never shocked by people who have a very low level of generosity to the local church and their time and in their giving when they fall into big sin because you've been feeding something for a long time and it's what can I get? And so one way you can get out of that is to actually be generous with your time, with your finances and move outside of yourself to start giving because you're feeding something. And one way to get out of that is to start loving and serving other people. What do we do in regard to sex? Some of you guys aren't going to like this next part. I'm just going to say it up front. You're not your own. You've been bought with the price. That's what scripture says. You belong to the most loving person in all of history, Jesus Christ. But also you, if you are married, your body doesn't belong to you, husband or wife, it belongs to the other. This is straight from scripture. Let me read it. First Corinthians 7, 3 through 5 says this. The husband should give to, to her wife, to his wife, her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. You'd be offended, right? Keep reading. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. 
Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. You may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I don't think we should have to go through lives begging our spouses for physical intimacy, nor do I think we should have to go through our lives begging our spouses to tell us that they love us, <laughs> to engage us emotionally. Uh, imagine the frustration you have if, if, if your spouse um, like pretended like you weren't there for a few days or like, you're like, hey, can you say hi or I love you or something like that? Same way, I don't think our lives should be lived. Well, well, I'm not getting this, I'm getting this, I'm not getting this. Again, let's go back to the covenant. That's what drives God's love for us. Let the covenant reflect how it's driving our loves for our spouse. It's self-giving. How can I give? How can I make this a, a, a great experience for someone else, just not for myself? It's not popular in today's culture. We push back against the Western culture until it comes to this. We're like, well, I don't like it. But again, do we want to do things our way, or should we maybe listen to the creator who's given the gifts and how they're best lived in such a way to glorify him? Let me close in saying this. We don't want to be a church that says, there's a massive problem with pornography sweeping a destructive path through. And so we are starting something and we are starting a class right now. It's going to be held off for the first 12 guys that sign up. And so if you guys have not heard our podcast, I would, it's not just a shameless plug for that. It's mostly Brad talking. So if anything, it'd be a shameless plug for him, our, our executive pastor. It's been a, a struggle through his, his walkthrough, but also ready to walk other people through. And we want to say, here's something we're providing. So it's a class for the first 12 guys. Hey, this is going to take courage. But we hope that through this, what you will learn is that through confession, through community, and ultimately through the covering and clothing that Christ has provided, you can walk in light. So if you're willing to do that, shoot Brad an email. Brad at gccugene.org. Brad at gccugene.org. And say like, yeah, I need some help in this area. I'm ready to step into this. Finally, know this, that Right now, in this moment, when we make our way to the table, whenever we sing and worship, we can sing and worship with this, that you are not what you have done in your current relationship and your past relationships and anything else in life. What you are, ultimately, is you are God's treasured possession. So you can take pleasure in knowing that you are his treasure, and you will be that. And when he looks at you, he has just delight and love that he pours out over you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder of the covenant and a reminder of what you've done. Jesus, thank you. We pray in your name, amen.